0: Welcome to State Bar of Michigan's On Balance podcast, where we talk about practice management and lawyer wellness for a thriving law practice with your hosts, Joanne Hathaway and Tish Vincent, here on Legal Talk Network. Take it away, ladies.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the State Bar of Michigan on Balance podcast on Legal Talk Network. This is Joanne Hathaway, Practice Management Advisor in the Practice Management Resource Center at the State Bar of Michigan.
2: And this is Tish Vincent, the Program Administrator for the Lawyers and Judges Assistance Program at the State Bar of Michigan. We're recording today's show at the Next Conference in Detroit, Michigan.
1: Joining us now, we have two guests. We have Chris and Marty Teber. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Before we get started, please tell us a little bit more about yourselves. Where do you work and what do you do? Let's start with Marty.
3: Okay. I've been practicing since 1973 when, as a second-year law student, I joined the State Appellate Defender as a student clerk. I got my bar card in 1975 and became an assistant defender at the State Appellate Defender Office and in nineteen seventy eight I became the director of our newly opened Lansing office and did that until nineteen actually two thousand and one at that point I opened a private practice so I was with the state appellate defender for about thirty years and then began a private practice in 2002 and during all of those years and it's been over forty now I've been doing criminal appellate defense work first with the state appellate defender on a salaried basis and for the last 15 years in private practice.
2: Thank
4: you, and Chris? And I'm Chris Teber, and I began working with my dad when I started law school at Michigan State University. And ever since, we've been working together on on appellate cases and habeas cases and different appellate cases that we've taken to all, all sorts of courts through Michigan and the federal court system.
1: Thank you. Well, we thank you for joining us today. We understand you have a case that was just listed on the National Registry of Exonerations. Can you give us the background on this?
3: Sure, Uh, this is the case of Dennis Tomasic, which is out of Kent County, Michigan, Grand Rapids. This case came to me in the uh, fourth year of my private, actually, no, probably the sixth year of my private practice, which was about 2008. The first attorney on the case was appointed uh, Kent County judge shortly after he received the case on appeal after Mr. Tomasic was convicted of a criminal sexual assault. Uh, The assault was alleged to have occurred with a young neighbor boy ten years earlier and basically it was a very sketchy accusation and the first thing that I saw about it was there was nothing there other than the words that the young man claimed were true and Looking further into the case after I received it on appeal I realized that the story had not been told and this is critical in criminal cases because Very many people do not understand the notion that you can go to prison for a long period of time just based on words out of somebody else's mouth. And the key to being able to protect against a false accusation and a wrongful conviction under these circumstances is to be able to have an attorney on your side of the equation developing everything that occurred in the case so that the jury, who is ultimately determining your fate, can know what actually happened there and make their decision based on full knowledge. And it was real clear to me as soon as I got into the case that that did not occur. So what happened was that Chris and I had to redo the entire case. We had to act as trial lawyers and appellate lawyers and do the original investigation. And Chris can talk a little bit about what that entailed.
4: Right and part of the uh, claim that the complainant made and and I think what was powerful to the jury was the number of times that he claimed it happened and while he was never consistent in his story his range of these abuses were anywhere from 10 to over 500 over the course of two years or two and a half years and what was never brought out were the circumstances of you know how they could have interacted for that many abuses to have happened so I think, and I've always said one of the keys to our case was we were able to get a hold of the children that were in, because they lived in a cul-de-sac near Grand Rapids, a very tight-knit community, and there was a group of about 10 children that always would play together. And the story of the complainant was that he was at this house every day, and almost every day he was abused by Mr. Tomasic And we were able to show that these kids, not only did he say that they were not friends, but they also said that you know they were around every day and he was never at the house. And furthermore, we were able to get work records for Mr. Tomasik that showed he, was, he worked long hours at a tool and die shop, changing between first and second shift, just basically putting him in a place where he could never have committed the crimes that he was accused of.
2: Interesting. It's fascinating to me how you could go back and get that information after the fact. Can you speak to that a little bit at well, all? You know, what the it process really, is? It really
3: and wasn't that difficult wasn't to get it? the information, okay. which is one of the horrible things about this case. And this is not an isolated instance. No. What you had here was the initial trial defense counsel did nothing absolutely nothing. In fact, he would go up to, uh, we've had him on several cases, he goes up to the jurors and when he begins questioning a witness, he will say to the jurors, now I've never really talked to this witness, not only with the prosecution witnesses, but with his own witness. He wears that as a badge of honor. It's supposed to be showing in his mind that he's neutral, Hmm. that he hasn't tried to sway the result, which is, in your adversary system, it's not the way to operate. No. Uh, And the problem was, the jury in the first trial never heard any of this information. Uh, About one, this young man who was making these claims was really never at the Tomasic household contrary to his claims that he was there daily, and two, and this comes from the whole neighborhood, and two, Mr. Tomasik was always at work, 60, 70, 80 hours a week. The neighbors would talk about him having to come home and mow his lawn with a flashlight strapped to his head at night because even in the summer, he wasn't getting home until that time of day. So you had a ton of evidence that the first trial attorney completely ignored.
2: Okay. So no investigation whatsoever.
3: Virtually no investigation whatsoever.
2: My goodness.
3: And that was one of our main claims on appeal, was that there was ineffective assistance of counsel. There were a lot of different issues that contributed to the reversal of this case. And I think one of the uh, very important facts about the case is the length of time that this case was on direct appeal. I think it is a record in Michigan. Mm -hmm. Uh, We handled it for eight years. Eight years. Eight years. Uh, The case was sent back to the Michigan Court of Appeals three different times by the Michigan Supreme Court. There were three unpublished opinions issued in this case by Mm -hmm. the Michigan Court of Appeals on direct appeal. We're not talking about post-conviction. We're no. talking about your first direct appeal. There were three full unpublished opinions issued by the Michigan Court of Appeals. Finally, the Michigan Supreme Court granted full leave to appeal, and that's where Chris did the bulk of the work. He did the briefing on full leave to appeal in the Michigan Supreme Court, and he did the oral argument, which he conducted very, very well. And then that resulted in the ultimate order about a year and a half ago to reverse this case and grant a new trial. And that's where Mary Chertier comes comes in, mm-hmm. in terms of the excellent work she did, to obtain an acquittal with virtually no time of deliberation. The jury immediately acquitted after the second trial.
1: So we're talking about this gentleman, Mr. Tomasek. He was in prison for eight years during this Actually, process? Actually,
3: it was close to nine years. Virtually, yeah. Virtually eight, eight years, nine. 11 months.
1: Okay, and you said it was basically unprecedented the length of time it took to get this reversal?
3: Right. And, I know, I I do have to give credit to the Michigan Supreme Court. They stayed with this case. Mm You know, I would have liked to have seen it done a little earlier, Mm -hmm. but, you know, they would not let go of it. And I believe that that means that we were successful in convincing at least some members of that court that there was something seriously wrong here, that there was a travesty of justice here, that this jury that convicted Mr. Tomasic did not have the information they needed to have. And there were a variety of reasons why that occurred. The actual reason for the reversal was because the jury actually had some information they shouldn't have had, when one of the investigating detectives was able to tell the jury or replay for the jury their interrogation of Mr. Tomasic where they would begin almost every question by telling him why they believed he was guilty. Hmm. Uh, and that is absolutely a violation under a very recent Michigan Supreme Court case, uh, People v. Musser. And for that reason, the order ultimately issued after the full leave to appeal process from the S- Michigan Supreme Court. So it actually was turned in the end on something that they saw that they shouldn't have seen as opposed to all of the information that they should have had that they didn't. But I have to believe that the reason that the Supreme Court stayed with this case for so long was because they were able to see all of the material that the jury should have seen in that first trial that they were not able to see.
1: Well, we talk a little bit here about what you feel should have been introduced as exhibits and witnesses that should have been called during the initial trial. Can you speak to us a little bit about the content of those and the persuasive nature?
4: One interesting point, and was basically a whole nother track of the appeal, was we had asked for the counseling records of the complainant because we knew he had been a troubled child based on his own testimony that he had been in counseling for most of his life and the original trial attorney had made a, a feeble effort to try to get it and the trial attorney or the uh, trial judge excuse me had done a, a very brief review of a very small period of his life and so we asked for the full complete review which the trial court initially indicated that they would do and after dragging their feet for a few months was never actually done so we took that to the court of appeals and they also denied but that was another time when the supreme court sent it back to have a full record review or actually uh, take that back while they were doing their full record review they uncovered three documents that were turned out to be crucial to this case they were three documents that came from school counselors, his own therapists and teachers that he had gone through through elementary school and basically the contents of these reports were that he had such trouble determining between truth and falsities that he, he basically didn't know the difference and and furthermore he would he would when he got in trouble he would blame adults and he would lie and say it was it was something that happened to him or adults did something to him and It it was just a constant refrain that he was continually lying and that he continually didn't know the difference between truth and falsity. And obviously this would have been very important to bring out in the original trial and we were able to obtain those results and bring those back in before the trial court who again denied and the court of appeals denied that and the Supreme court finally, you know, after granting full leave, that was part of, of the process in the Supreme court argument.
2: So those reports just showed a strong pattern that this young man was comfortable distorting the truth.
4: Exactly. Yeah. And that he would learn to live with those lies and yeah. create them in, in his own mind as the truth.
2: He's almost believe them himself after he'd created Correct. them. Yeah.
1: And as far as the accuser goes, wasn't it several years between the alleged date of these incidents and the time he finally came forward and contends that, all of this occurred? Can you speak to that a little bit?
3: Well, the precipitating factor for the accusation was the complainant being caught red handed in his school committing a theft. Um, and as soon as that occurred, uh, he first denied it, and then when he was shown videotape showing that he was the one in the locker room committing the theft, he said, okay, yeah, I guess it was me, but Mr. Tomasic abused me when I was a child. Mm-hmm.
4: And, and, of and course, he escaped prosecution. Well, actually, initially, sorry to That's okay. cut in, but initially he said it was a neighbor, but he couldn't remember the name, even though what? supposedly he had been there, every, you know, every day for three years. And after working with his parents and his new counselor, they were able to, you know, ascertain that it was, quote, unquote, Dennis Tomasic. Okay.
1: So fast forward which really you can't do when eight years have passed, right? <laughs> but okay, so let's let's fast forward back to the retrial. And I know you spoke to that a little bit, Marty, um, a short while ago, but maybe you can give us a little bit more detail, the length of the trial, how long the jury was out, um, anything else you would like to share that you think would be interesting?
3: Well, in terms of the details of the length, I, I don't have those. I think it was maybe a week or two, but the key is Mary Chartier being retained by the family. Um, at that point, I became calm. <laughs> I had not been before. Uh, she is an amazing trial litigator. She took everything that we had developed during the appeal process that spanned eight years and developed it the way it should have been developed and added even more. And so she was able to go through and show the second jury all the detail. She brought in, uh, I think, well over 20 witnesses who talked about everything from the size of the house and the dimensions and the impossibility of this having occurred, the fact that the neighbors were able to see in the window where this allegedly occurred, all of the work records and all of the people at our client's place of work who testified that he was always at work, all of the folks in the neighborhood and the children in the neighborhood who testified that one, the complainant was a pathological liar who could not possibly be believed and was vindictive and untruthful and accusatory, falsely accusatory towards lots of people. But more importantly, that this complainant never came around the Tamasic household, never played with the Tomasic kids, was never in the house, hardly other than on maybe one or two occasions.
1: And was the accuser called to the stand during the second trial?
3: Both trials.
1: Both trials, okay.
3: And in both trials, he held a Batman doll and told the jury that he firmly believed that Batman was real.
4: So. The second, which he was 27 years old.
1: Oh, my goodness. He actually did that?
4: Yes. In okay. both trials,
1: was the jury aware that there had that this was a case that was being retried, or were they not given that information? I,
4: I actually just at lunch today I learned that there was one slip up by one of the defense witnesses right at the end that Tipped cued, that cued them up. into that, but obviously it didn't make one bit of difference because they said that the last witness, and so yeah. Normally,
3: uh, from the defense perspective, you don't want the jury to know that the case was previously tried. <laughs> But again, as Chris noted, it made no difference here because when you look at all the information in this case, the allegation is absolutely preposterous. It cannot possibly be believed. And Mary talked to jurors afterwards, and they told her the same thing. That was their complete belief. And the fact that they issued a verdict within a few minutes of
4: that sounds reaching the jury right there. room uh,
3: on one vote uh, with unanimous agreement shows that you know what this case needed from the start to protect Mr. Tomasek from this false accusation and from being locked up for nine years for something that never, ever occurred. Not that just that he didn't do it. It just never, ever mm-hmm. happened. What he needed was somebody working diligently on his behalf, putting this all, all of this information in front of the jury. That never happened in the first trial. That's what occurred here, and that's what, as attorneys, we need to be on guard for this because, again, the key here is that you can go to prison for the rest of your life based on words coming out of somebody's mouth, alone. There's no question about that, and I think most lay people are stunned to hear it said that way. And if you've not had that experience of being involved in a case where the only evidence that is being presented by the prosecution is a statement by a complaining witness saying, this happened to me with no physical proofs, with no eyewitnesses, and you then are in a position where the jury either believes the complainant and sends the defendant to prison for the rest of their lives, or believes the defendant and acquits them. If you got a case like this, you have to develop the factual record. You have to be able to show that jury all of the things that were shown to them in the second trial that allowed them to conclude that this story was preposterous, which is something that we saw as soon as we got the case in 2008.
1: Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. I want to thank our guests, Chris and Marty Tiber for joining us today.
2: If our listeners have questions or wish to follow up with the two of you, how can they reach you?
3: I think the easiest way to get to both of us is email. I mean, we're constantly on top of that. And it's real easy. Uh, Mine is Marty, M-A-R-T-Y, at tiberlaw.com. Tiberlaw is all in one word, T-I-E-B-E-R, law.com. And Chris's email address is Chris, K-R-I-S, at
2: tiberlaw.com. Thank you.
1: This has been another edition of the State Bar of Michigan On Balance podcast. I'm Joanne Hathaway. And I'm Tish Vincent. Until next time, thank you for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to the State Bar of Michigan On Balance podcast, brought to you by the State Bar of Michigan and produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit legaltalknetwork.com. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find the State Bar of Michigan and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download Legal Talk Network's free app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network or the State Bar of Michigan or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.